Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Buoyed by another year of big surplus tax revenues, Governor Gavin Newsom has released his proposed $286 billion state budget for the coming fiscal year. The budget focuses on spending big to confront such issues as the pandemic, education, housing and homelessness, climate change, and the state's drought. Newsom's budget also proposes an expansion of health care access to all California residents, regardless of immigration status. With more on that, here's KQED politics reporter Guy Marjorati. Newsom laid out dozens of ideas in his three-hour budget presentation on Monday, but called this the big one. California is poised to be, if this proposal is supported, the first state in the country to achieve universal access to health coverage. The governor wants to spend over $800 million next fiscal year and billions in the years to come to provide Medi-Cal coverage to the low-income, undocumented Californians currently ineligible, those between the ages of 26 and 49. Republicans like State Senator Jim Nielsen were extremely critical of the idea. He's opening the door to a blank check providing for illegal individuals who come to California. But Newsom's proposal is likely to win support from Democrats in the legislature, like Assembly Budget Chair Phil Ting. We've been advocating for full Medi-Cal expansion for years, and having the governor propose the final step to move towards universal health care in California, I think, is a great step. Many progressives, however, want the state to go further and a bill to shift California to a single-payer, government-run health care system faces a committee hearing this morning. Asked about that idea, Newsom said he hasn't had the chance to read it yet. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. Governor Gavin Newsom is expected to issue an executive order this week that could help schools get substitute teachers into classrooms. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports. Acknowledging the severe staffing shortages many schools are facing right now, the executive order would do three things, according to a source in the Newsom administration. Extend the time long-term subs can stay in schools. Shorten the time retired teachers must wait before they become eligible to return as subs. And make it easier to credential new subs. John Baker is a school board member for South San Francisco Unified. He says the district is hearing from people who want to work as subs. They have to fill out this application, do whatever tests they need to do. And if we can get them a little bit further along, that would be very welcome news, even in a non-pandemic year where we already had a substitute shortage in San Francisco and San Mateo County. Baker says staff and student absences in his district are through the roof, and they need all the tools they can get. For the California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. Hospitals in the U.S. are seeing a record number of children hospitalized with COVID-19, and California is no exception. Reporter Kitty Alvarado with KPBS in San Diego has more. 
Dr. John Bradley is the director of infectious diseases at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. He says right now they have twice the number of children hospitalized with COVID than at the peak last year. But again, the kids aren't, aren't as sick. The numbers of positive tests is through the roof. That's, you know, five times more positive cases are being reported now than, than last year. The children testing positive have either mild or no symptoms, and the hospital says the children did not come in for COVID concerns at first. They were there for cancer treatments or support for other illnesses, and routine tests caught their infections. Bradley urges parents to take precautions and vaccinate their children against COVID, because even a mild infection can trigger more serious illness that can have lasting health repercussions. For the California Report, I'm Kitty Alvarado in San Diego. The unprecedented surge in new COVID cases has led to a COVID test shortage at retail stores. So over the weekend, Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order that gives consumers price gouging protections. KPCC's Jackie Fortier has the details. Newsom's executive order prohibits sellers from marking up prices on COVID at-home test kits by more than 10 percent. It also gives law enforcement additional tools to take action against price gougers by making it a misdemeanor. Starting January 15th, the Biden administration will require private insurance companies to cover the cost of eight at-home COVID tests per month, if you can find any. In the meantime, frustrated people seeking COVID tests are clogging up LA's already over run hospital emergency rooms. Later this month, the federal government will launch a website to begin making 500 million at-home COVID tests available through the mail. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. With the surge in COVID-19 cases and long lines at many testing sites, Los Angeles County has launched a new program to help ease some of the backlog. The program allows residents to pick up a PCR test kit, complete it, and return it to a designated site for processing. County health officials say they expect the program to provide more than 6,000 tests a day. The most recent surge of COVID-19 cases in California is putting a strain on many hospitals across the state. But it's different from previous times during the pandemic. In many cases, patients aren't actually going to the hospital because of COVID, but find out they're positive after they've been admitted. But because the Omicron variant is more transmissible, more healthcare workers are also getting sick. We spoke about this with Dr. Bob Wachter, chair of the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco. We started by asking him about the current pressures on the healthcare system. It's extraordinary. I mean, we knew a month ago that this thing was more infectious than the prior variants and that it would do some sidestepping of the immune system. But the, the volume of new cases, the fact that everybody knows tons of people, friends, family, and others who are infected is pretty staggering. The other thing we knew was that, or at least as of a couple of weeks ago, we knew it was milder, quote unquote. But the equation we've tried to convince people of is that if it's somewhat milder, but massively more infectious, that still ends up in a bad place. And that's basically what we're seeing, that hospitals are seeing significant surges uh, if you have a lot of vaccinated people, that is somewhat protective because the vaccinated people are far less likely to get very sick. But hospitals are getting busier and busier. And then we have, of course, this new twist that we haven't seen previously with a lot of healthcare workers who are out sick. So at UCSF today, 
We've got about 70 COVID patients. That's a lot. It's not our peak, but it's a lot. But probably just as importantly, we have hundreds of doctors and nurses who are out. So the strain on healthcare systems really is the combination of getting very busy with COVID as well as just having a, a fair number of your personnel who are not able to provide care. Let's talk about uh, someone who's really important in your life, and that's your own son. Um, he uh, recently tested positive for COVID. I bring that up because you've been tweeting about it pretty prolifically and, and, and talking about your uh, kind of a journey of COVID understanding through the eyes of your son. What have you learned that you did not know before your son contracted COVID about this, this experience? The two reasons I tweeted about it were that I wanted people to see that the uncertainty and the anxiety that one feels uh, when a loved one has it is universal and actually is not all that mitigated by the fact that you actually know a lot about the illness. So almost in every step of the way with him, there were decisions. I think I know as much about COVID as almost anyone at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of all I've done and study for the last two years. And there are decisions that I and he had to make that were just dripping with uncertainty. Some of them were influenced by a paper I read that morning and, or a tweet that I'd seen that morning. And so, you know, uh, it gives me even greater sympathy for, for everybody else who's trying to make all of these decisions, you know, and dozens of them a day. You know, do I go out? Do I go to a restaurant? Do I see friends? You know, if I'm going to test, how do I do that? What's the best way? What does a negative mean? What does a positive mean? I wanted people to see that th these are universal. I also wanted people to see that uh, and this is sort of a doctor thing in general, but as applied to COVID, that there's a part of our brain that really is trained to be the dispassionate scientist, to look at the data and look at the numbers and make a decision and try to push your emotions to the side to some extent. Because if you felt fully everything that we did all the time, we couldn't practice medicine. When it's your family member, you know, that is in tension with the dad part, which is, you know, freaked out. And so one morning, the morning after he first got sick, and he was pretty sick on day one, I called him at nine, he didn't answer the phone, and I called him at 10, he didn't answer the phone. And I knew that the chances of a fully vaccinated, three, three vax, 28-year-old dying overnight were pretty much zero. And yet a little part of my brain, you know, the little anxiety hormones started going off, and I, I basically ran down to his apartment and, and, sure. and, and opened it up and went into his room to be sure he was still breathing. So... There is all that. And the third thing, I guess, was, you know, I'm as connected as anybody in the Bay Area. I run a big department at UCSF. I couldn't find a test. I couldn't find a rapid test. I signed him up to get his PCR. It was four days later, which makes it essentially worthless. And so I probably could have pulled rank uh, if I needed to. But, you mm -hmm. know, that, that's the general experience of people living through this. So I wanted people to, to see that I get it and help them see how I think through some of the problems, which are really quite daunting. So you had the same kind of issues that a lot of us have trying to understand this huge thing that is COVID. Yeah. And you, yeah, you and the I, expert I, who's been studying this, exactly. who's been thinking about nothing about COVID the last two years. Exactly. And I, you know, on Twitter, of course, there's the usual uh, stuff that comes in, like, why make such a fuss? This kid had a bad cold, quote unquote. Well, part of what I wanted to do was talk about him. And by the way, uh, I thank him very much because he gave me permission to do this. And he said, Dad, if you think this will help people, it's, it's great. And he's doing, he's doing fine now. So part of the reason I wanted to do it was his case was totally ordinary. Nothing special about it all. You know, tens of millions of people uh, have experienced exactly what he's, he's experienced. And so I just wanted people to see that even when you know a lot and you are, quote, an expert, this is really, really tough.
All right. That is Dr. Robert Walker, chairman of the UCSF Department of Medicine. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us on the California Report. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Grocery stores have been some of the few retailers that have stayed consistently open during the pandemic. Now, a new report highlights how workers at one chain, Kroger's, which owns Ralph's and Food for Less, are faring, and how the virus has affected their work. KQED's Michelle Wiley reports. Jeannie Olson works at the Ralph's in La Cunada, just outside of L.A. She's been there for four years and says, for the most part, she likes her job. I love my store. I'm proud of my store, and I like the people I work with. But like for so many, things have been tough. Olson says she makes just over $15 an hour, which barely covers her monthly rent of more than $1,500. And she's not alone. A new report from Economic Roundtable surveyed more than 10,000 Kroger workers in Southern California, Colorado, and the Puget Sound region of Washington and found that wages haven't kept up with the cost of living. Workers surveyed also said that conditions have gotten worse during the pandemic, with more people quitting or calling out sick. Daniel Flaming is the president of Economic Roundtable and co-authored the report. Grocery stores are one of the few places that have stayed open throughout the pandemic. They've really been the front line for this drama of incivility and kind of social transformation we've been going through in the pandemic. Flaming says workers are reporting frequent conflicts with customers over mask mandates and general anxiety and anger. And at the same time, nearly 80% of workers say they've experienced food insecurity. 14% say they're homeless right now or have been in the past year. And workers like Jeannie Olson, who was previously homeless for about a month, are still living on the edge. I feel like I'm on a banana deal. Because my rent's so high and I get paid so little that one false move and I could be homeless again. And between making decisions about what bills she can afford to pay and what food she can afford to eat, Olson's at work selling groceries. For The California Report, I'm Michelle Wiley. And that is The California Report for Tuesday, January 11th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a good day. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together on the web at schmidtfutures.com. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. 
a story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.